Welcome to Millennial Minds with activist, model, preacher, and public figure, Yasmeen Yazzie Speaks Arrington. Definitely have the voice of the young people in mind. Join her as she sits down with artists, content creators, business owners, and community activists to get their stories. We'll hear the millennial perspective straight from the crafters of the culture sculpting our today and tomorrow. And now, here's your host, Yazzie Speaks. Hey, everybody. This is your girl, Yazzie Speaks, on another episode of Millennial Minds. I have a very illustrious, esteemed Southern Belle with us today that has a beautiful Southern draw in her at You Will Hear It, You Will Hear It, raining from Louisiana, uh, is Miss Gabrielle Perry. <laughs> yes, Gabrielle A. Perry is a formerly incarcerated woman turned epidemiologist published writer, very eloquent writer, by the way, um, and aspiring medical provider. Ms. Perry is the founder and executive director of the Thurman Perry Foundation. She founded the organization to create more paths for women and girls just like her. Hi, Gabrielle. Hello. How are you? And I'm doing well. How are you? I'm I'm better now that I that I I see you. Like your your spirit, your vibe is so positively contagious. It just like jumps out at me. So I I am feeling it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh my goodness. Absolutely, absolutely. So yes, Gabrielle. Please um, give us a snapshot of you. You are a multifaceted woman, a multi-talented woman, one of many hats. Uh, who are you? Uh, what is your current, what, what do you currently do? What is your profession, your aspiring profession? And what are the things that you do in addition to that, that align with your, your passions? You, you mentioned previously what your passion is. So definitely share, share that with us. I always, I always try to lead with fun things about myself. So I always tell people... I'm a huge Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. I know everything about that show. It's my favorite show in the entire world. That show raised me, okay? Okay. Uh, I have heard every song that Paramore has ever made. Uh, <laughs> I'm teaching myself a new language. <laughs> but in all seriousness, um, I, I, wear, I wear a couple hats. I wear a couple hats. Um, my career is that of an epidemiologist, as you mentioned to your listeners. Um, I was formally trained at Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. Uh, down- and let me ask you, Gabby, I'm sorry to cut a question. For people who don't know, what is an epidemiologist? What do you do? What do you study? Uh, if you don't know by now, in the, the two years that we've been living in this pandemic, <laughs> an epidemiologist is uh, someone who studies the distribution and determinants of diseases. So an epidemiologist, basically the pandemic is my whole job. And so you've likely met an epidemiologist and didn't realize it's a very, very versatile field. And it's in a lot of different industries. You can work at a hospital, typically hospitalists or internists, people who determine whether or not you're admitted into a hospital. They tend to be epidemiologists. Oftentimes, epidemiologists tend to be researchers. Um, the majority of the people who are at health departments and such, a lot of time they are uh, epidemiologists. Oftentimes people, everybody that you've probably seen on the news who are presenting all those pretty graphs about um, these diseases are epidemiologists. And your job 
Like Dr. Fauci? Hi, Dr. Fauci. <laughs> um, their job is to is to basically track and understand how diseases move through environments, how and why. And so in terms of how I do my work, um, my specialty is infectious diseases, but you can specialize in anything. There are reproductive epidemiologists, there are infectious disease epidemiologists, there are cardiac epidemiologists. I mean, there are a plethora of subspecialties. I work with a team of epidemiologists, PhDs, uh, a physician, a health analyst, um, and we conduct population health strategy and clinical data analytics. Um, in grad school, uh, I, my main focus was HIV and AIDS. I did my fellowship um, in the clinics of South Louisiana and New Orleans and ended up presenting my research at the CDC. My main focus was making sure that there was more of a focus on collecting data for as HIV affected Black, cisgender, and transgender women. I think that people don't realize how much the epidemic affects both of those populations. And as with everything else in my life, I'm always so focused on on Black women, Black women and girls. And my work as an epidemiologist is my career, but my role as the head of my nonprofit, I feel, you know, that that's my calling. That's my, that's my calling. And as you mentioned before, you know, I'm the founder and executive director of the Thurman Perry Foundation. It's named in memory of my deceased father, uh, U.S. Army Master Sergeant Thurman Perry Jr. Our organization is solely dedicated to aiding women and girls impacted by incarceration, whether they be currently or formerly incarcerated or the daughters of those who are currently or formerly incarcerated. Uh, I myself meet a lot of those parameters. I am the, I myself am a formerly incarcerated woman. I was arrested seven years ago. Also the birth child and birth grandchild of incarcerated parents. My biological siblings have all been incarcerated and I'm not just passionate about these things just for my personal experiences, but for the women that I've met through this journey, I think that I owe it to them. I owe it to them in, in, in so many ways. I think that I can't have seen everything that I've seen and, and know everything that I know and go to my grave not helping these women. I just can't. So if you ask me, you know, what I'm passionate about is it's the empowerment of these women that nobody is thinking about. Mm. And Gabby, you had mentioned something previously and I, I won't, I, I want you to say it, but essentially what you were mentioning that, uh, Louisiana, um, is one of the States that disproportionately incarcerates people in this country, right? Absolutely. So I think since before I was even born, I was born in 93, Louisiana is- Girl, listen, we the last of the realists. I be telling people they don't listen to me. You know what I'm saying? We the last, we the last ones. We the last one of the ones, okay? Um anybody <laughs> else after they missed the train, right? They, they, miss- they don't understand. We the last ones of the ones. But I be telling people, you know, Louisiana is the foremost incarcerator of persons per capita in this world, in all the world. And Our state has about 9 million people. 49% of this state has a criminal record. And 
We are also the state that has the most false incarcerations in the entire country. And it's just unacceptable. I think that's I, I, when I even think about it, I get taken aback every time I even think about the statistics. It's unacceptable. But what's most unacceptable to me is that in the movement for Black Lives and in the movement for mass, against mass incarceration, it's solely about how it affects men. It's solely about how it affects boys. The call to arms is about protecting men and boys, about freeing men and boys. If you sit down and talk to anyone about it, you would assume that every woman who is incarcerated in this country did it. They all did it. And they all got what they deserve. And everybody, every woman in jail, just, you know, it's just tough titty. Nobody is talking about the fact that 80% of women who are incarcerated are mothers, that 84% are victims of sexual violence, that 64% come from the foster care system, that um, the Sentencing Project just published a study that said that the, uh, many of those women have been incarcerated for crimes they weren't even present for and were only incarcerated because of their proximity to a male spouse. And so you're talking about women who are in jail with juries not taken into account that they're victims of abuse, that they are literally there for defending themselves. I mean, nobody's thinking about these things. Nobody's talking about right. these things. No one's talking about Nobody's talking about the dehumanization of these women. Nobody's talking about the fact that 98% of the people who are in jail are coming home. And what happens to them when they get out? You know, the, the unemployment rate for formerly incarcerated women is 27%. And to put that in context, the unemployment rate nationally during the Great Depression was 23%. So this is a national crisis. The unemployment rate for formerly incarcerated black women is 43.1%. So nobody's hiring black women who are coming out of the jails. So then what, what does that mean then? That means that we are perpetuating, as a country, we are perpetuating a cycle of recidivism because hungry people don't stay hungry for long. So what options are we leaving these women? These women are coming out of the jails within a year a lot of them are, are still living either with a relative or what options do we give them? They have to go back to an abuser. They're homeless. They're either unemployed or underemployed. And by underemployed, the official definition of that is they're um, at a job that, you know, has no real upward trajectory. So they're, you know, typically in the service industry and things like that at fast food and stuff like that. That was my reality. So, I mean, what what options are we giving people? In fact, um, Prison Policy Initiative, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that studies these things and publishes these things, have found that even organizations that very publicly and, and very loudly purport to support people coming out of the prisons, you know, uh, people who have felonies, people who have criminal records and whatnot, aren't, aren't doing that. They are throwing your applications in the garbage mm. and only purporting to support you for the publicity. So, I mean, it's just it's just a lose-lose situation all around. And 
it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. Oh, Gabby, um, thank you so much for for really painting painting this picture uh, of how severe and how dire and real uh, this you know the the circumstances are in this country and the situation, especially as it relates to African American Black women uh, and Black women who have a criminal record, whether you know innocent or otherwise and how it's affecting and impacting them. Um, I, I love that you are highlighting us and, and bringing, bringing us to the forefront, incarcerated women, returning citizens, and um, directly impacted women who may have a spouse or family members. <clears throat> you know, I myself, as I'm sure you know, Gabby, my father um, has been in and out of jail and prison my entire life. Um, and so I, 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 have that connection to you and, and am in, in this, you know, in this also, uh, having, having experienced it my entire life to this very day. Um, but I, I would love to, and we're, we're going to circle back to talking more about your work and, and the impact that you're having in the different projects you're working on and your vision and all. Um, but take us, take us back, take us back to your childhood, uh, Gabby, if, if you will, um, you know, what was it like? What was your upbringing like, uh, fam, home life, family life, life in school and life, life in your community? Um, you know, and I, you and I have talked about it, you know, prior to the show a little bit. And I, I always try to preface, I always try to preface it just because, you know, I've, I, I can talk a bit openly about it, but I always try to preface things for people who may have lived similar experiences and may not be able to talk about more traumatic things more openly. So I always want people to know like, hey, my childhood wasn't super great. So if you maybe want to skip ahead or come back in like five minutes, that's fine. Like, <laughs> I guess, what, what do they call it? Like trigger warnings and things like that. That's fine. Um, you know, I grew up super rural town in like um, central Louisiana. I, I was raised in the country. Um, we had we had a bunch of land, like seven acres of land. There was like, I, I, it was a, a big horse farm next to us. I, I grew up with like two horses, I had a bunch of dogs. And, you know, it was so weird because it was just, it was just really me. My parents were older and um, my mom couldn't have kids. So I was adopted and I didn't grow up, of course, knowing I was adopted. My daddy had grown children by the time I was born and I was raised the only child. And everybody always said, you know, my daddy spoiled me, which I, I still get very annoyed by just because, you know, you know, I, I get super annoyed. You doing what daddies do, right? I mean, I mean yeah, I'm so spoiled because my dad, like, you know, fed me and did what he was supposed to do. <laughs> I just hate when people say stuff like that. That is so annoying. Like, I'm spoiled because my dad raised me. Like, Jesus. <laughs> might, might, might be a little jealousy going on. And I always thought that, like, excuse the hell out of me because my daddy, like, was home every day. Like... <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and I, I just, I was just, a, I was a very quiet child. I feel like everybody always said that every, all, even all the adults in my house was a very quiet child. I think I just had, I had to grow up very, very fast. Unfortunately, I don't think I, I ever really got to be a kid. 
there was a lot of abuse from my mom. I don't really have any great childhood memories. I think that my mom's life just didn't turn out the way that maybe she wanted. I don't know. I, I try to think of her as a person as opposed to my mom. I think that that humanizes her for me now that I'm older. I'm 28 now. And because she was she was the boogeyman in all my closets as a kid. She was my first bully. She was, and it wasn't the way I always try to, and I don't really try to explain it to people anymore because it can't really be explained. When you try to explain your trauma to people, they try to, I think they try to level it or try to minimize it. And I don't, I don't really tolerate that. Like I, I know what I endured as a kid. And it was very much inhuman. Like my mom was vicious for sport, what she put us through. I remember having really adult conversations with my daddy at like 10 years old, asking him like why she was the way she was, why she hated us. Like she was just, it wasn't even just the physical abuse that was so bad. I could deal with that. As, as sporadic as it was, it was the psychological abuse. She would do things just because she knew it would bother me. Like she knew it. And it, it's, it's so hard to put words to it. I remember when I got, when I got to college for, for a time, I just told people she was dead because I, and I, and I did, didn't do it out of hate. I just did it because I Love is such a funny thing because I love my mother and we get along now. We get along now, but I did not know how to reconcile my love for her with all my memories of how absolutely horrendous she was to us. I mean, she would just beat us because she felt like it, like just... Just just vicious because she felt like it. she would go days without speaking to us. And then the next like the only interaction with her be just like bursting into my room and just beating the hell out of me. And I, I apologize. I, I say us in, uh, inadvertently because my therapist says that it's a trauma response because I don't have a lot of memories of my childhood because my brain has like disassociated like I've kind of. um it's 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 still hard to explain. Like I kind of like disassociated into like another part of myself, mm-hmm. where it's like it didn't really happen to me. It happened to like another part of myself, which sounds insane to even say. But it took a lot of years of therapy to even admit that. Like it's so it's just it's just that's how intense it was. And I remember. Like it was so hard too because she was never sorry. She was never sorry for it. I think that her version of being sorry was knowing that. Um, I remember one day my dad was like, "The day is gonna come." He, I don't think he knew I was around when he said this. He was like, "One day the day is gonna come where I'm gonna be gone." Because my dad was ten years older than my mom. He said, "One day the day is gonna come where I'm gonna be gone, and that girl's gonna want nothing to do with you." Mm. And you're going to be all alone. That's what he said to her. And he had no idea I was around. She didn't either. And I just heard him say that. I think I was like walking towards the living room one day, which was which was a rarity for me. I used to always I spent every waking moment in my room because to even be around her, like my 
skin would crawl. Like I just couldn't stand to be around her. I used to, um, I used to, to wait for her to go to sleep and just try to like eat in the middle of the night. Cause I used, to, I was just, I was terrified of her. I was terrified of my mama. Well, I would only go when my dad was home because he had a job at the at the at the uh, power plant, and so he would work on the poles at night when I was a little when I was a little bitty girl, and um, he would be gone um, at at different different weird hours, of course. And I just, I couldn't even sleep if he wasn't home. Couldn't do. I just couldn't if he wasn't home. I just was just hiding from her. And so it was just, it just wasn't a great childhood. It, was, it wasn't great. A lot, a lot of it's just lost in my mind, but I, and it, it was harder because um, when I was like nine, she got really sick. She got um, diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, like really severe rheumatoid arthritis. It started with her um, losing her ability to walk. Like her, one of her legs swelled up like softball size inflammation. And it was so wild too. When I, I remember being very young and understanding that something was mentally wrong with her because she was willing to endure that pain just so she could blame us for it. Like me and my dad, just like she, she told us, you know, don't call 911. Like, I don't want to go to the doctor. And later on her brother blamed me for it. I was like, I had to been like 12. Her brother said it was my fault. Cause, she, Cause eventually she did have to go to the doctor. Like she had to go to the doctor. They were talking about amputating her leg at that point. Mm. And her, I remember we were going to get her food to bring back to the doctor. And her brother said it was my fault. My uncle said it was my fault that she had to go to the doctor. And I knew very young that it wasn't like something in my mind. I, 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 I just knew that it wasn't my fault. And he kept saying, yes, it is. It's your fault. You could have called somebody. And I just I remember thinking, being very young and just thinking about it very intellectually, like, no, this isn't my fault. Like just very much like that. Like just no, this isn't. I didn't do anything wrong. And I remember telling my dad, like asking my dad, like, "Hey, dad, is this my fault?" To which he was infuriated and was gonna beat the shit in the front yard. <laughs> my dad was not at all intellectual about it. It went to the front, and my uncle never came back to the house. Like that's probably actually my happiest memory from my childhood actually because I was just like I didn't realize what was happening I was just trying to figure out like hey I was trying to get some clarity is this my fault right but she had she had it was why she had lost her ability to walk spent like half a year in the hospital she spent almost like two in rehab trying to save her leg and then like Around the time she was, she was, she was able to, she went from like being able to get in like a power wheelchair. She worked, I'll give it to her. She, she worked hard to save her leg. She said, y'all are not cutting off my leg. She was able to get on crutches and wrong time. She was able to get on crutches and like drive is when um, my daddy developed cancer. He developed a uh, head and neck cancer. And um, the diagnosis took him within like six months, which was crazy too, because it, it never occurred to me at any point that my dad was going to die. Like at no point at it just, I was like 15 at the time at no point that everything dad's going to die. I remember the day that we found him at the house. Uh, I came home from dance practice because he was under hospice care at the time. Nobody really explained to me what hospice care was. I just knew a nurse was coming to take care of him every few days of the week. But I just knew that, 
he was never going to leave me alone with my mom. Like, I just knew he would get better. I knew he was never going to abandon me with her. Like, that was just not even a possibility. My dad would never betray me like that. He would never leave me alone with her. And I didn't know. I, the day he died, like, um, I was sitting in the computer room and I was making a sandwich and I was eating. And slowly but surely, uh, neighbors and stuff started showing up to the house. And I still didn't think anything of it. And then um, the paramedics showed up. And that's when um, I walked up to my mom and I asked her what was happening. And she said, all she did, she just looked at me and just like, just like a pure sociopath. She looked at me and she just said, he's gone. And I'm just absolutely just torn apart. I've never been so devastated in my life. And I threw myself on her and she didn't really have much of a reaction. Um, to this day, she's never had much of a reaction to him being gone. Mm. And we just never talked about it. We never talked about it. We never talked about him being gone. And I was 15 at the time. And we just, we just never talked about it. And two months after he died, and it was like a week after my 16th birthday, because he died in November. And my birthday was in January. We got a knock at the door. And I was like, I was, it was just a very normal day. I was like, I think it was a Saturday or so. I was cleaning the bathroom. I always clean the bathroom on a Saturday. And uh, I was never allowed to answer the door. My mom answered the door and there was a man that came in the door and I had seen him before, like all my life. I had never talked to him before. I had never heard his voice. And I just assumed that he was um, one of the prison work release workers that my daddy used to hire for uh, his lawn service business. Because my daddy was a lot like me. He always believed in second chances. And so he always hired men from the prison work release program, treated them like sons. I still talk to a few of them to this day. And um, my mom called me from the bathroom and uh, she didn't say anything else. But the man spoke and he said that he was, he said his name and he said that he was my brother. And he said that, um, that he, he and I had the same mom and that she was dying in a local hospital and that I needed to come with him to come and meet her before she died mm. and it was a it was a bit of a jarring moment i remember looking at my my mom who i thought was my mom and though she had always been so terrible and even then was so emotionless like my mother is just she just does not feel emotions like other people do mm. and i was tearing up and i asked her i was like you know you're, you're not my, my mom. And she looked at me and she said, well, I'm the only mom you've ever known. Just like that. <laughs> so, oh my goodness, Gabby, you are amazing. And oh I, my just, God. I just, ah! thank, you, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for your transparency and, you know, digging, going, going back to places that are uncomfortable and, bring up lots of emotions and, and thoughts, but you, you did it. And I'm excited for people to, to hear you. And uh, so please, I, I want people to connect with you. Tell us where we can find you on social media and tell us um, your, your, um, your foundation website. Once again, follow my foundations, Instagram and Facebook. 
at Thurman Perry Foundation. If you really want to jump in that water and list, find me ranting and raving on Twitter, follow me at um, at not go Gabby. That's N O T G E A U X G A B B Y. And follow, please, please follow, and feel free to donate to um, my organization, the Thurman Perry Foundation, at www.thurmanperryfoundation. That's T H U R M A N P E R R Y Foundation.org. And I'm just so grateful to you, ma'am. I just, it's so much light that you shed on the world. It's so much that you're doing for women and girls. And that's that's who needs it. I'm, everything I do is for women and girls. And I know you feel the same. And it's such a it's such a dearth of organizations that's really out here for women and girls, not just yeah. in, in mentorship and whatnot, but in tangible resources. Like yes. I believe so much in giving girls what they need, give people what yes. they need, what they share need. your power. Mm. And I just respect so much everything that you're doing. I'm just so grateful that, that you were willing to share yours with me and have me on your show. I'm so grateful to you. Girl, look, this is just the beginning because little do you know, I'm telling you now, you're going to be Scholar Tips 2022 uh, keynote speaker. So we just put it out there. This is just the beginning, but I I love you. I have a new sister. I have, And I do not use that word lightly. I have a new sister and I mean it in a positive sense, in a loving sense. Um, so thank you for everything, Gabby. And uh, we, I, I love you. And thank I you. I love. For thank you so much. Being deep and sharing, like this is this is this is big. This is big. <laughs> You've been listening to Millennial Minds with activist, model, preacher, and public figure Yasmin Yazzie Speaks Harrington. For more information, visit yazzieharrington.com or dcradio.gov.